Well, you walk through the door, he was laying there, and she was over here. Blood all over everything. Elizabeth walked in and looked at her and said, I'm the devil and you're the sacrificial lamb. Six months after the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem, their youngest daughter, Elizabeth, and her boyfriend, Jens Soaring, both students at the University of Virginia, were the prime suspects in the gruesome crime. And one fellow student remembers some odd behavior. I came home one day and I was pretty sure I had locked my door. I lived on the third floor by myself. And my door was ajar. And I walked in and there was Elizabeth Hasem in my room. And I was like, what are you doing here? And she said, well, you know, I'm moving in next year. Laura Parsons was finishing her master's degree at the University of Virginia in the spring of 1985. She was living on the third floor of a house owned by the Unitarian Church in Charlottesville, about a half mile from the university grounds. And Hasem and her first-year roommate, Christine Kim, were planning to move into Parsons' room in the fall. She had this South African accent, like a British accent, you know. And, and she, she had spiky blonde hair, and she was wearing the sort of punk rock de rigueur safety pin black clothes of the day. She just had attitude, and I was not very pleased that she had broken into my room when I wasn't there, but no harm, no foul at that point. In fact, Parsons was sympathetic to Hasem. She'd heard that her parents had been murdered not that long ago. And in another encounter soon after, she says Elizabeth brought that up. She was asking me, could she move in early over the summer? And I was like, no, you know, because I'm not moving into my apartment in Chicago until this particular date, so I need to be here right up until the end of my lease. And she says, well, it's just I have all this stuff because my parents were killed and everything. And, and she said it with this, just, it was just so strange because there was no grief. It was just kind of being pissed off at me. But I excused it because I just thought, oh, it just, it must be so terrible that she's just closed down emotionally. It's just too awful for her to think about. And that was my excuse for her. Elizabeth couldn't move in early, but she did move in at the start of her second year at UVA. And Parsons had a final encounter with Hasem and her boyfriend, Jens Soaring. I had moved out of my rooms in the house, but I was going back, I think, probably to take my keys back. They were there with a van because they were moving Elizabeth in, and they had managed to flood the engine of this van, and they didn't know what to do. And Jens, he just, he was just kind of this young, geeky guy. He was really, really nice, and he just seemed to be in the thrall of Elizabeth, but she was kind of a force of nature in her personality, and he just clearly adored her, but didn't seem up to her. Elizabeth's stay in that apartment didn't last long. A month after she moved in, she and Jens fled and became the prime suspects in her parents' murder. She was an interesting person and pretty captivating to a lot of people. He was not a larger, imposing person. He struck me as being sort of a young high school nerd. Classmates at the University of Virginia remember Jens and Elizabeth as an odd couple. And their behavior in the months after the murders aroused suspicions that were confirmed when the couple disappeared, just as investigators, including Sheriff Carl Wells, began closing in. From that, they gave us away. They went, well, they didn't run because they were innocent. The couple was caught in Europe writing bad checks. An international legal battle began to bring Jens Soaring back to the U.S. to stand trial for the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem. 
the trial became a media circus. It was the first televised trial in Virginia. Lynchburg Cablevision presents same-day coverage of the Yen Soaring trial from the Bedford County Circuit Court, brought to you as a public service by Lynchburg Cablevision. So how did these two promising college students become co-conspirators in a brutal double murder? Jens and Elizabeth arrived on UVA grounds in Charlottesville in late August 1984. Both were Eccles scholars, which meant they were in the top 6% of their incoming class, and they had special privileges as students at the university. If we had a, a class we wanted to take and it was closed, all we had to do was go up and whisper, hey, I'm an Eccles scholar, and got in. Amy Lemley was an Eccles scholar a year ahead of Jens and Elizabeth. Along with academic advantages, Eccles scholars socialized together and had special networking opportunities. They also lived together. It was a whole dorm full of the smartest kid in the school. Jens and Elizabeth both lived in Watson, one of the designated dorms for Eccles scholars. They met at the beginning of the school year, but they didn't become romantic until a few months later. On the surface, it was an odd pairing. Elizabeth was two years older than the rest of her classmates, and she stood out. She cut a very stark figure in that dorm because she just had a very different look than your average 1980s first-year college student. That's Doug Guru. He was an Eccles scholar with Jens and Elizabeth and lived in the same dorm. There were people that we would describe as being punk. She had the look of someone who, like, at my high school would have been in that crowd. She had hair that was unusually styled. She just dressed differently. But, but she was just someone that I knew of in the dorm because she had an unusual look. To go along with her unusual look, she had unusual tales. She told classmates of her worldly adventures. She was born in Rhodesia and had attended a prestigious boarding school in Switzerland and spent months traveling across Europe and doing drugs with her female lover. And 18-year-old Jens Soaring hung on to her every word. He was not a larger, imposing person. He struck me as being sort of a, you know, young high school nerd, not unlike myself. He had large glasses. But Garusa Soaring did stand out as exceptionally smart with his own worldly experiences and international perspective. I remember one conversation with him in, in particular where we were just up late one night talking, and he was comparing the uh, Holocaust experience in Germany with what the U.S. had done to Native Americans, which was not a, a perspective that I had heard at that time. I remember finding that to be very interesting and, and thinking to myself that that's kind of the perspective that somebody would have who was from a different country and not something that I would have been exposed to. Jens was born in Thailand, the son of a German diplomat. He lived in Europe before moving to Atlanta with his father, mother, and younger brother. He finished high school at the exclusive Lovett School. In addition to being named an Eccles Scholar, Jens was awarded a full scholarship to UVA as a Jefferson Scholar, which is the school's highest honor. That fall, in a dorm full of the smartest students, Elizabeth and Jens gravitated to each other bonding not only over their superior intellects, but also their resentment of their overbearing parents, which they expressed in a series of disturbing letters over winter break. In a letter to Jens, Elizabeth writes, Would it be possible to hypnotize my parents, do voodoo on them, will them to death? 
It seems my concentration on their death is causing them problems. My father nearly drove over a cliff at lunch and nearly got squashed by a tree when he got home, and he keeps falling over. And my mother, drunk, fell into the fire. I think I shall seriously take up black magic. We can either wait till we graduate and then leave them behind, or we can get rid of them soon. My mother said today that if some accident befell them, she knew I would become a worthless adventurer. More maternal acumen. Jens writes back to her, By the way, were I to meet your parents, I have the ultimate weapon. Strange things are happening with me. I'm turning more and more into a Christ figure. A small imitation, anyway. I think. I believe I could either make them completely lose their wits, get heart attacks, or they would become lovers in an agape kind of way of the rest of the world. Three months later, Derek and Nancy Hasem were dead. It will be several more months before investigators zeroed in on Elizabeth as a suspect. And when they asked Jens for his fingerprints in October of 1985, the couple took off. Flash forward to spring 1986 in London. British detectives arrested a young couple named Christopher Platt No and Tara Lucy No for writing bad checks to Harrods department store. After a little digging, investigators realized they were dealing with more than just fraud. Christopher and Tara were actually Jens and Elizabeth. When investigators searched their apartment, they found the couple's letters from winter break, fantasizing about the deaths of Elizabeth's parents. The detectives called the Bedford County Sheriff's Office to let them know what they'd found. Detective Ricky Gardner and Prosecutor Jim Updike were on the next plane, headed to London. During interrogations in the days after their arrests, both Elizabeth and Jens confessed. Here's a recording English detectives made of Elizabeth's confession. You knew he was going to do it, didn't you? Did you? I did it myself. That was silly. I got off on it. It's hard to make out, but that's Elizabeth saying, I did it myself, I got off on it. Then the detective responds, don't be silly. Detectives didn't take her confession seriously, especially since Jens offered his own confession with plenty of details. Elizabeth was sent back to the U.S. after serving eight months in an English jail for check fraud. But an international legal battle over the death penalty meant it would be years before Jens set foot on U.S. soil. Finally, in 1989, Bedford officials agreed to drop the capital murder charges against Jens, which took the death penalty off the table and cleared the way for him to be extradited back to the U.S. By that time, Elizabeth had already had her day in court. I sentence you to 45 years in prison on each charge. The sentence is to run consecutively a total of 90 years. Elizabeth pleaded guilty to being an accessory before the fact in the murders of her parents, and she was sentenced to two 45-year terms to be served consecutively. For the people who'd known Jens and Elizabeth at UVA, the arrests were shocking. And Laura Parsons, the UVA grad student who had been unnerved by Elizabeth's odd behavior after her parents' murders, said Elizabeth's appearance at her sentencing hearing was also startling. The thing that I found rather shocking was these pictures of Elizabeth in the courtroom because there she was in her frilly little high-collared blouse and her hair was styled just so and she just looked like 
so prim and pretty, which was not at all the person that I had met. Elizabeth was sentenced in October of 1987. She granted one interview with her former classmate, Amy Lemley, a journalist who wrote a lengthy article later published in Albemarle magazine titled Misfit, Murderous, Martyr, an Albemarle interview with Elizabeth Hasem. We were alone in a room. She looked the same as she did when she was on trial. She had long, kind of mousy brown hair and no makeup. She was calm. She was thoughtful in her reactions to, you know, to the questions that I had. She didn't seem offended by any topic I brought up. Things that intrigued me were something like when she was talking about her parents and how they were very critical of her. and That's just the type of people they were. They never missed an opportunity to stick the knife in, was the phrase she used. It's a pun. Might you withhold that particular pun if you were talking about this? Yeah, maybe. Then again, maybe you don't think about it because you don't feel particularly guilty or you aren't. Does it mean anything? I don't know if it means anything in particular. I, I found it interesting. Elizabeth described Jens as controlling and temperamental. She told Lemley she was starting to get along with her parents in the weeks leading up to the murders, which made him angry because he felt like he was losing her. The weekend of her parents' murders, Elizabeth and Jens rented a car and drove to Washington, D.C. During the trip, Elizabeth said Jens became enraged that her parents didn't approve of him or their relationship, and he left her in Washington, driving the 200 miles to the Hasem home in Bedford County to confront them. While she waited in Washington, Elizabeth claimed she got high on heroin and LSD, Around midnight, she said Jens pulled up in the rental car, wrapped in a bloody sheet. She said Jens told her he'd killed her parents. Elizabeth said she felt alone and scared and felt responsible for her parents' murders, and she agreed to help cover for Jens. Elizabeth also alleged in the article that Jens had been impotent until the night of her parents' memorial service, and that he had sex with her for the very first time while she was on tranquilizers. With Jens behind bars in England, Elizabeth's version of events was uncontested in the article, and Lemley said she never spoke with Jens. Um, but I was not able to get to him. So what I had to go on were interviews with people who knew him, the letters. The article portraying Jens as a murderer was published in June of 1990. This article came out right as he was going to trial, and... Copies of it were being sold on the steps for $10, sort of scalped on the street. Inside the courtroom, a salacious book also depicting Jens as the murderer was being passed around and autographed by investigators. Lynchburg Cablevision presents same-day coverage of the Yen Soaring trial from the Bedford County Circuit Court, brought to you as a public service by Lynchburg Cablevision. The Capitol Hill to work out a. The Dukes of Hazard will not be presented this evening. Saturday night at 5 here on Channel 9. It was the first televised trial in a Virginia courtroom, and it came years before the 24 7 cable news cycle. The Yen Soaring trial was must see TV, not just in Bedford County, but across the state. David Fokey was a radio reporter and covered the trial for a news outlet in Roanoke, Virginia. Here you had sound from the courtroom that day, and 
we did hourly reports. So you were constantly just turning out these stories of here's what just happened. Here's what just happened. The prosecution was led by Jim Updike. At 26, he was the youngest elected Commonwealth's attorney in the state. And by the time he had tried Yen's case, Fokey said he'd developed a reputation in the courtroom. I was born in, 19, in January of 1963. John F. Kennedy was shot in November of 1963. And if Jim Updike had charged me with the Kennedy assassination in a Bedford court, I would have run. Even though at the time of that shooting, I was how many months old? Ten months old. He was great at getting convictions. He was really, really good. Fokey says a big part of Updike's success was his ability to connect with jurors in rural Bedford County. To be this sort of like almost local yokel prosecutor. He, his suits weren't amazing. He was very sort of country in his way. There was a story sometime, and I don't remember if it was in the Soaring case or some other, where for some reason somebody quoted, I don't know, F. Scott Fitzgerald or something like that. And Updike stands up and pretends not to know anything about who this famous author is or anything like that. Well, I've never heard of such this, you know. And I remember sitting there in court just absolutely floored because what people didn't realize was that Updike's undergraduate degree was in English or American literature. And he probably knew more about this author than all the rest of us combined. Updike knew his audience. With the cameras rolling, the prosecution presented its first evidence, the letters between Jens and Elizabeth from winter break in 1984, imagining the deaths of the Hasems. Next, forensic experts testified about the blood, type O blood, Jens blood type, collected at the murder scene, in the living room and inside the front door. Then the prosecution's star witness, Elizabeth Hasem, was called to testify. Fokey says he got chills. Elizabeth Hasem is the only person I've ever seen walk into a courtroom where I had a physical reaction. She walked in and the hair on the back of my neck went up and the room felt colder. And maybe it was only because she was such a significant witness and that people believed that either Jens had done all this stuff to protect her and told all these lies to protect her and she was letting him take the fall. Or he was actually guilty of all of these things, and she was this inadvertent victim of this terrible tragedy that cost her her parents. And so either way, she's this person that walks in and you go, well, can't wait to see what she has to say. Then, you know, her testimony didn't do him any good. She walked him into prison. Elizabeth was the star witness, but the star evidence was a bloody sock print found at the crime scene. A forensic examiner named Robert Hallett showed the jury a translucent picture of Yen's ink footprint and laid it over the bloody sock print found at the scene, saying it was a match. In closing arguments, Updike repeated that claim. And you pull that out, and it matches, and it fits like a glove. Yen's took the stand in his own defense, telling the jury he only confessed to the murders to protect the real killer, Elizabeth, and save her from the electric chair. But his story of sacrifice to save the woman he loved didn't move the jury. He was culturally very different, and English was his second language. So you think about all these things that factor into it. And look, if he had been from Long Island, he would have stood out in that courtroom as being not from around here. I think there was some arrogance. I think he thought that he was smarter than the people around him, and he probably was 
technically. Um, I'm not sure that that played well. His ability to communicate his thoughts and his feelings and to try and explain away some really damning things that he had he had put into the record himself. You know, his comments to the British police, the, the letters that they wrote back and forth, all that stuff is just like, ugh, you know, what are you doing? And how do you explain that with a degree of finesse you know, it's that old thing. It's not what you say, it's what someone else hears. And I think there was a huge gap there in his ability to fully realize that what he was saying and what they were hearing were different in that courtroom. The jury of six women and six men deliberated for less than four hours before delivering a verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder. At the age of 23... Jens received two life sentences for the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem. Jurors told a local newspaper after the verdict that there had been a 6-6 split over Jens' guilt when deliberations began. But the physical evidence, in particular, that bloody sock print eventually convinced them. One juror, Jake Bibb, said, What he wrote didn't convict him. What people said didn't convict him. It was what he left behind. Next, on Small Town, Big Crime. I told Updike the afternoon that he got the conviction that I thought they had convicted the wrong person. This is a prepaid debit call from... Jens Zerling. An inmate at Virginia Department of Corrections, Buckingham Correctional. Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town, Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself. And if you spot us there, say hello.